And this brings me back to my favorite conclusion to everything, which is that nobody knows anything. You're listening to the Elevate Podcast, and I'm your host, Robert Glazer. Join me as I talk to world-class performers about how they build their capacity and reach greater heights in leadership, business, and life, and how you can do the same. Welcome to the Elevate Podcast. Our quote for today is from Theodore Levitt. Creativity is thinking up new things. Innovation is doing new things. My guest today, David Heinemeyer-Hanton, is a true innovator. He's the co-founder of Basecamp, which has been used by almost 20 million people globally. He's also the founder of Hey and the creator of the transformational Ruby on Rails, an open source framework that was used to create Basecamp, GitHub, Shopify, Airbnb, and more. He's also a frequent writer at Hey World, the New York Times bestselling author of four books, including Rework and an award-winning race car driver. David, welcome to the Elevate Podcast. Thanks for having me. All right. So you have quite an eclectic uh, group of, of personal and work hobbies. That always leads me back to sort of childhood. I, I know you grew up in, in Denmark. Uh, I assume it gave you a pretty different perspective than the uh, American entrepreneurial community. What was different about growing up in, in that culture that helped set you up for success? Well, I think one of the things about Danish culture is that it is, for better or the worse, not obsessed about work in nearly the same way as the American culture is. Um, Danes work far fewer hours, and I don't think have quite the same entrepreneurial role models, and they don't take up as much uh, airtime as they do in the U.S. I think there's definitely downsides to that. I mean, the U.S. is just such a dynamic economy. It is... Uh, such a dominant player in so many things. Um, Denmark's got a lot going for it, but um, it isn't stories about entrepreneurs uh, putting in 80 hours and killing it that dominate what we see here. So it did not dominate my upbringing. I didn't know anyone whose parents worked more than not even 40 hours. In Denmark, it is hilariously almost precise. It's 37 and a half hours a week because they account for a little lunch break or something. Um, so 37 and a half hour weeks is what everyone worked when I grew up. So when I moved to the U.S. and just got uh, sort of enmeshed in this culture where there was such a celebration of more is more, um, that felt very foreign to me. And I think I definitely came out of Denmark with a very distinct cultural programming for having life be more than just one thing, that it was not a singular obsession just to kill it at the office or kill it at work or kill it at entrepreneurship. So I took that with me. It left a deep imprint that I knew lots of happy, fulfilled people who had work as one component out of many in their lives. And then they had family, they had hobbies, they had exercise, they had all sorts of other things. And I thought, you know what, this seems to me to be a better mix than a lot of the Americans I came to know. And I carried that forward uh, all the way through. Uh, never worked these mad entrepreneurial hero hours of 80 plus or whatever. Yeah. Um, since the beginning, Jason and I have committed to working 40 hours a week or less and have been doing that together now for some 22 years. And it's still working just fine. There's room for all these other things. As you mentioned, um, when uh, when work doesn't take up all of your time, you can also enjoy things like driving race cars. Do you think it become? I mean, there's so many different, like what the chicken and egg arguments around that. Do you think it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy where people give up everything but work? So they just singularly define 
success by ironically maybe the the input of their work not the output of their work yes absolutely i think that shines through when you hear a lot of this discourse is that it is set up as a premise that cannot be violated if you want success you must sacrifice everything else i mean i've heard all these nonsense pick pick two out of threes all the time you can either have work family and or or health pick two like what yeah. Well, I gotta, I gotta be sort of a fat slob, or I gotta have uh, no kids, or or work can't go anywhere. Why do I have to choose between these things? This is one of the reasons that Jason and I, and most of our writing, has focused so much on the aspect and concept of time and how you use it well, how you use it better. This is one of the reasons why I'm such a big fan of Stoic philosophy yeah. that teaches us that we have plenty of time if you spend it well. Life is long enough. And I have tried very hard to embrace that ethos, that life is long enough. 40 hours is more than plenty. I can't be productive for more than four or five hours on a good day. Um, So this idea that I need 10 or 12 is just other nonsense. I've worked with people who sort of reflected that notion that they thought that they could work 10 to 12 hours and have been shaking my head at the nonsense that would come out in the other end. I think it's exactly as you say, people are obsessed with their inputs and then they think automatically that the outputs scale with that. And they just don't. The first 10 hours a week are far more productive, far more important than the next 10 hour. And this was one of the these things that got illustrated to me very clearly when Jason and I started working together on Basecamp, our main product at 37 Signals. We started working on that in 2003. And at the time, I had 10 hours per week to dedicate to this endeavor because it was a side project. It was something we were doing next to having clients. I was in school at the time. There just wasn't 40 hours a week to work on it. So I worked 10 hours a week on this project. And we wrapped it up in about six months. And that has gone on to create hundreds of millions of dollars in revenue and be this a cornerstone of our business 20 plus years on. And it was all born out of 10 hours a week. So when I went from 10 hours a week to 40 hours a week, I thought like, she's what am I going to do with all yeah. this time? <laughs> and even to this day, I find that um, those 10 first hours, if I only work 10 hours in a week, it is, I get whatever, 60%, 70% of the work I would get out of a 40-hour week done. Because uh, if you front load it, it, it's like a power law. Everything is like a power law, that the things you work on first should be the most important. And if they right. are, the value of those important things far outpays the value of the latter hours. And, and you mentioned this, but you're part of a, what I think is a rarity of business, an entrepreneurial partnership that's now lasted two decades so how did you meet Jason Freed, who we had on episode number uh, 86, and what prompted you two to get into business together? Yeah, so funny story. Um, in the early 2000s, uh, around the year 2000, I started following 37 Signals, um, a design company at the time, a very curious design company, a design company whose website was just text. Uh, I had been working in the Danish.com 
internet industry for a couple of years. And I thought that was just such a novel concept that you'd have a design company that would promote itself on its writing rather than its graphics. Mm. When I was coming up through the 90s, all the design companies were all about flash. They were all about graphics. They were all about cool animations. Uh, uh, technology flash, not literally. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yes. The technology flash now long gone. Um, and and here's a website that just have 37 points of view hmm. wow curious weird interesting and then also just a, a design approach that was very focused on on the writing as jason has been fond of saying for two decades plus that uh, copywriting is design and perhaps in many cases the most important part of design so i was just a fan sitting in copenhagen and then in 2001 jason made a post to the company weblock signal versus noise with a question about php and i was like ooh, ooh, ooh. I know the answer to that one because I had been doing PHP for a couple of years. I sent Jason an email. We we started corresponding, and uh, and it didn't take long because before Jason realized that it was just easier to hire me than it was to learn how to program. And we started working together fully remotely again, sitting in Copenhagen. He was in Chicago, seven time zones apart. For the first six months, I think we communicated entirely via IM and email and uh, we didn't meet each other until after a year but then uh, we simply started working together on client projects for a couple of years until we had the idea for base camp and that was really the big inflection point where the trajectory of the business changed it went from being a consultancy to being a software company and that was when i came on board full-time and in Basecamp, you formed a software company that was effectively the antithesis of the VC-backed hypergrowth kind of formula, I'd say, that's dominated the last 20 years and is having an interesting run at it right now. Well, like, what made you take that course? Was it was it sort of some of the philosophy we talked about? Or did you think you would go down that road and then you kind of changed it? And then just, you know, I'll throw more questions in here. Over the last 10 years, like... Does it feel like that was the hard choice when, you know, people with one tenth of the idea were getting five billion dollars, <laughs> you know, valuations? It's always hard, you know, when 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 you're sort of feels like you're totally swimming against the tide. Yeah. So it's funny. It never felt hard. It really didn't. Jason and I were both blessed with the experience of going through the dot-com boom and bust. And it was incredibly fresh in our minds when we started working together on Basecamp. We had both worked for VC-backed um, internet companies in the 90s. Yeah. And we'd seen the excesses <laughs> that came from that. We've seen the waste. We've seen the squandered promise and the squandered capital. And of course, it all blew up in 2001, spectacularly so, right? You had all these billion-dollar valuation companies suddenly being sold for I was going to say pennies on the dollar, but you need something smaller than a penny, I think. Most kind of, of these like the companies last year. Were, yeah. yeah. Exactly. <laughs> yes. In some ways, yes. Um, and I think we just didn't have any appetite for that. Not only didn't we have any appetite for it on the business side, this just seemed like a, a poor gambler's way of running a business. Not that you could not win big. Clearly, many entrepreneurs and some VCs did, but that the odds of that just seemed distant and remote. And neither Jason or I are big gamblers. Neither of us like big risk taking. So I think we both knew that that was not a path for us. And then second of all, um, we're both keen on efficiencies. We're both keen on making things ourselves. And when we started Basecamp, 
it was just the four of us, Jason and I and uh, Ryan Singer and Matt Linderman that got started with the software part of the business. We launched this Basecamp product in 2004. It takes off uh, beyond our wildest expectations very quickly. With, with no marketing, it took off because it was good and people shared it and they brought in other people, right? It took off because it was good and it took off also because we had an audience. Yeah. When I started following 37 Signals in 2000, uh, the company was one year old. By the time we launched uh, Basecamp, the company was five years old and had been blogging and sharing opinions and insights in those five years. So yeah. when we launched Basecamp, I remember we had 5,000 people subscribing to our RSS feed, maybe double that, let's say, in readers who didn't read it through RSS. So maybe 10,000 folks in the audience that we could launch this product into. And that was enough. That was enough of a seating that we could get it out there and have some traction off the bat. I mean, hopefully also because they actually enjoyed the product. But there are good products all the time that get launched into the void and they go nowhere. We launched it into sort of a fertile ground of an audience that we had spent five years building. Not a very big audience by modern standards, but an audience nonetheless that could um, propel this forward. But even so, even so, we spent more than a year before we went full time. And by the time we went full time, that just meant that these four people who were there when we were building Basecamp started getting paid 100% off the product, not lavish salaries. Like all four of us um, would have salaries less than a single uh, Silicon Valley tech worker today, right? Mm. But that was enough to get going. And, and we were thrilled with that. We did not have this sense of impatience that I think a lot of entrepreneurs through the dot-com days and onwards into the venture capital era just had all the time because of the money, because of the time bomb that would get started as soon as they signed that funding round. We didn't have the, the time bomb on our back. We simply had an intention to create great software, to have fun along the way, to be creative and get the most out of what we had. So it took several years. I think by 2007, Basecamp had at that point been out for three years. It was doing really well. It was a million-dollar business um, easily by that time. I think we were seven people. Hmm. Seven people. I mean, I know startups with more than seven people just on the basis of some idea they have on a whiteboard. Without a product. Right, without a product, let alone customers. How many are you today? We are the largest we've ever been, just under 80 people. Right. 80 people having served as many customers as we talked about, yeah, historically. Yeah. Yes, and, and in many ways, th that's a very recent phenomenon for the longest duration from about 2013, 14 until about a year ago or two years ago, we were 40 people or thereabouts. So we've run a very lean, small, efficient company for a very long time because we were spending in part our own money the company has been profitable since day one for now, what is that, 24 years and counting. It was always our own money. So we had a very different philosophy approaching the, the nature of the business. It was not about growing it as large as it could be on some top line, because the top line in many ways didn't mean anything. The only thing that meant something in an economic sense to Jason and I was the bottom line. Right. Top line doesn't pay the bills. No, it doesn't. And the bottom line can be affected by spending less. Yeah. So 
that's what we did. And I mean, it also just flowed well with our personalities. I think both Jason and I were allergic to large layers of middle management, still have an incredible skepticism when it comes to full-time management in general. I'd say if we're generous, we can count about three full-time managers at our company now out of a staff of 80 or thereabouts. I would not count neither Jason nor me as a full-time manager. We do a lot of sort of the work itself most of the time. Um, Both Jason and I would refer to our CEO and CTO hats as just that, hats, temporary positions that are needed a a few hours a week most of the time. And then that leaves us with the, the bulk of our time spent on actually making the product with our own hands. So that just ends up producing a very different company, um, especially in an industry like tech that, as you say, is dominated by the fact that there are so many venture capital-backed startups and they get the lion's share of the attention. And they have, as you say, sometimes literally billions of dollars to waste. Um, for a very long time, Basecamp did not have a lot of direct competition. These days, it totally does. And all of the direct competition falls in exactly this camp as you prescribe. They are companies who might spend $300 million a year to earn $100 million. And that was a great strategy right up until about 12 months ago. Yeah. Like We just went through the longest bull run the startup market has ever had. I mean, if you remember the dot-com boom and bust, that was about I, a five-year. I lived it, yeah. That was a five-year bull run, right? Like it started in 95 and it blew up in 2001. Right. The current bull run we were just in basically started in 2008, 2009 and ran uh, unobstructed all the way through to 2022. Right. So the problem is if you're under 32 years old, let's say just let's index 10 years from average college graduation. You've never known anything but right. boom. Exactly. You think this is the aberration, right? Maybe right now, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. And I think that's just really fascinating. And I think it's catching a lot of people off guard in ways that um are not so surprising to those of us who are a little older, who've been both through the, the Great Recession, but even more importantly for the tech industry through the dot-com boom and bust. Because even the Great Recession, as terrible as it was for a lot of people, it largely left the tech industry unscathed, or at least the impact was not nearly as large as it was in other sectors of the economy. But this one, right now, is the tech industry in particular that's taking the brunt? You the, have the all Patagonia these companies. Vest recession. That's what I've heard yes, people call. It. Yes, yeah. <laughs> that's a that's a funny term, right? <laughs> that that valuations um, in our uh, part of the industry, for example, many of our competitors have taken like minus eighty percent, or I saw minus ninety percent at one point from like the the peak of where they were to where they are now. And like, what do you what do you even do after that? The people that work there, when these companies have raised at these valuations, they don't realize that no one will make any money, maybe except for the founder, because they don't understand preferences. So like yes. all, all that equity is effectively worthless. And even the founder equity at yeah. this stage, once you've yeah. taken a minus 80%, you are washed out. You yeah. will not recoup. So now you've got to reset and reschedule. And I think it's a big mess. And I pity the people who have to deal with the fact that they have to go back to invest and say, oh, cool. So that thing we raised 18 months ago, that valuation, like poof, it's gone. Now we're at like a fifth of that or less. But I think that's um, sort of just a realignment that's happening. And what's unique about this right now is that it's happening in tech. You look at other parts of the economy and it's 
you could almost say weirdly doing well, right? Yeah. Like unemployment is at all time lows and and so forth. Yet you have in the tech industry something like four hundred thousand people have been laid off just in the last twelve months or so. Uh, a lot of them from the big tech companies, and a lot of that, of course, because those tech companies hired like mad during the the pandemic, and now they're realizing for all sorts of reasons that um, oh, actually, we don't need all those people. Our businesses were actually not just growing as wildly as we could predict if we simply took the data points from the pandemic and drew a drew a marker through it. That was not a realistic growth curve. So what do we do now? We have to scale back. We have to figure something else out. And here we are running the same kind of business that we've always been running, going like, oh, yeah, that sucks for you. It, it must really suck for you. Um, not really so relevant to what we do or how we do it. Again, not that macroeconomic themes don't have any impact whatsoever yeah. on our business. It's just completely different when you have been um, inside your skis, so to speak, never sort of overbuilt for the purpose of empire or domination, which has never been in our flavor. And um, and it'll be very interesting to see what all comes of this. Are we headed now to a 2001-style crash when you'll just have these mass number of bankruptcies, as happened at that point once the runways run out? I mean, that was what was interesting, too, about dot-com. Unless you're an AI. <laughs> unless you're an AI. But, I mean, people would probably have said, unless you're in crypto yeah, about, yeah. like, 12 months ago, right? So well, that, right. I mean, at this moment, right this second, but I, I saw something that said, up until two years ago, or was that that seventy percent of the companies that were in AI either were doing nothing with AI or only machine learning? Like it was just even a even before ChatGPT came out, the term was used liberally. Let's just say, yeah. I, I, although I will take also that as a sort of um, some humility here. Up until literally a year ago, I thought the vast majority of all AI AI was not just like overstated, but other bullshit. Yeah. Like that most of the AI was just a, a bunch of decision trees, a bunch of if else's all the way down. And I thought that up until basically what nine months ago when we see Chat GTP and we see uh, Midjourney and and these other things come out and like, oh wow, actually we're also calling this AI. Like that earlier thing we called it AI. And now we're calling this new thing AI. But those two things don't have anything, it seems, to do with each other. One represents a really fundamental breakthrough, and the other was just snake oil. But even so, I think it is also possible, as excited as I also am for AI, that we are overstating the case right now. Oh, almost certainly, yeah. Yes, almost certainly, right? <laughs> and in, in many of the same ways that you look back at self-driving cars, like what, 2016, 2017, where there was these wild projections from major industry figures that basically went like, yeah, in 12 months, no one's going to own a car because there's just going to be robot fleets servicing everyone. Well, there was going to be no paper. My article this week is on yes. the maximalist. And every time, you know, one of these revolutions comes up, you have the maximalist, there'll be no paper, there'll be no catalogs, there'll be no stores by the way right. selling online is harder than ever right now and and if you follow the maximalists yes. now there'll be no other jobs and, and the problem is and you know this and we'll get into this that there's a difference between a cool technology and a product and a business model like that actually and when you give it off away for free and people love it it can be very hard to then you know get to to a business model like again people forget product technology versus business model a hundred percent. This is one of those echoes again from the dot-com bust. I remember there was this thing called Blue Mountain, which was 
giving away what was it um um, sort of cards like holiday cards or something and they were like look we have so many eyeballs when we give everything away for free yeah. and then at some point like a few months later they were like oh yes but actually just giving things away for free is is not a business Expensive. model now <laughs> yeah. it turned into be actually a business model this is also what's so interesting sometimes the things that look so folly at the time just need another 10 years right like facebook is making what is it 207 dollars per living person in the US yeah. out of their ad machinery, their surveillance capitalism. And you go like, that was basically the Blue Mountain thingamajing. It just didn't have the dystopian targeted ads machinery to make it yeah. happen. So sometimes things can be early and look silly. And then the same thing like 10 years later, just with a slight tweak is actually the things that ends up dominating. And this brings me back to my favorite conclusion to everything, which is that nobody knows anything. Yeah, Nobody knows anything. Even when it comes to AI, right? Like you see these um, interviews with people who are now at the forefront of this talking about what they thought it was going to be in like 2013. Yeah. And they were like, oh, yeah, yeah, we're going to we're going to get rid of all the factory workers. We're going to turn everyone into a robot and whatever. And it turns out, no, it's actually the freaking lawyers and the doctors yeah. and the animators and the artists. Factory workers are doing really are well. Feeling yeah. the sweat, right? <laughs> exactly. Factory workers have been doing very well. And if you are a plumber today, you probably have yeah. greater job security than almost any white collar worker in employment. Have you ever owned something that inspired you to up your game? Two years ago, I bought a dual suspension mountain bike for the first time, and it pushed me to ride trails that I had never been willing to try before. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has exceptional capability that will have you seeing the possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. The Lexus GX comes with available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, best-in-class towing capacity, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. I've seen the new Lexus GX popping up all around my town, and not only does it have the capabilities to take you to new places on and off the road, but it's a great-looking car. The new Lexus GX is ready to raise the bar for you. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Hey, Elevate listeners. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify is the partner you need to keep the cash register ringing for your e-commerce business. <coughs> Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading platforms. I advise a lot of companies in the e-commerce space and almost all of them have migrated to Shopify. And as a buyer, what I love about buying from Shopify-enabled sites is that they already know who I am, and I don't have to create a new account or enter all my payment info. The ShopPay service makes it faster and easier to buy, which surely helps with conversions. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S., and Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com elevate all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash elevate now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash elevate. Yeah, that's interesting. And, and I have a feeling, have you read Nassim Tlaib's work? You seem like someone who would like his 
his writing, the the Black Swan. Yeah, he he talks about the Economist, and every year, you know, when they say the market's going to whatever, he's like, "Can you list me what you predicted the last ten years and what the actual outcomes were?" Like people always forget that part of the question before the. So he puts everyone's kind of scorecard up there. But I, I could list a, a whole bunch of things that are kind of the anti SaaS or software playbook, right? No, no focus on the exit, no meetings which you can get into remote. These are all before anyone did it. Four day work week, summers, profitability. But there was also another one. I mean, as you mentioned, it used to be called 37 Signals. I remember using it. And then you had Backpack and a bunch of these other things. And then you all said, actually, like, you know what? This is actually the core product. We're, t- we're, we're undoing all of the other products. And we're actually so focusing on Basecamp that we're going to rename the company Basecamp. Again, no one does this. So walk us through <laughs> the, the epiphany moment there. Yeah. So that was that was really interesting. And it was driven by this fact that... Um, Jason and I, by the year 2014, had been in business together for, what is that going to be, 13 years. We had sold secondaries to Jeff Bezos back in 2005, I think it was. We'd made all the money we needed to make by 2014. Like The reason we were still going to work was because we enjoyed and do enjoy going to work. And you made it off of profit. And we yes. made it off, off of profits, right? right. There was like no liquidity. Made, there was no exit. Yeah. No, there was there was a small sale of secondaries in in 2015, but that was really compared to what came after a modest amount. The vast majority of the fortunes that Jason and I built up running this company over those years came out of running a profitable software company for a long period of time. And by 2014, we were faced with this interesting choice that we had four active products that we were selling. We had Basecamp, the project management tool that we continue to sell to this day, the original application that started our journey as a software company. We had Backpack, as you said, which was sort of this personal note management uh, Notion style app, actually quite close to Notion, again, like whatever, 10, 15 years before that. We had Campfire, which was essentially Slack about 10 years before Slack. And then we had a high rise, which is a CRM system that has still not really been replicated in any convincing form. And we had a company about 40 people and four growing products with 40 people, even with a lean company like ours that were very efficient with everything was just too much. It was way too much. And what we realized at the time was if we were going to do all four products real justice, we would have to probably double the size of the company. And at the time, we didn't want to do that. I looked at that effort, doubling the size of a company, and I just saw horror. I saw layers of middle management. I saw all this indirection. I saw the worst experiences I had had working for other people. And I said, why do we have to do this? Do we have to do this? Is it an sort of moral obligation that if you have a growing company, you must grow with it in all terms, including headcount? And we came to the realization that, no, we could do whatever the hell we want. And we could also just say no. And that's what we did. We said no. We said, we don't want to be more than 40 people. So what's what's the alternative? We're not going to run twice as fast. We're not going to ask those 40 people to work 80-hour weeks. We want to work in a calm, sustainable company. So let's just double down on the best thing. Out of the four, the most promising. Can't ever escape it. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. It kicked in and Basecamp was it. So we took the other three products and we essentially um, stopped selling them. Now, the funny thing is we actually still service them to this day. There are still customers on Backpack. There's still customers on high rise. 
People didn't stop buying them, but you stopped <laughs> selling them. Yeah. Well, we we stopped selling them in terms of uh, selling them to new customers, but this is SaaS software. So people continue to pay us on a monthly basis if they continue to find value in it. And tons of people still do. But all our efforts went into Basecamp. And then we ran with that for about six, seven years. And then we um, we had a new idea. And we're like, all right, now we've done that for a long time. We're... A board is the right word. We we have ambitions we cannot sort of hold inside us, and that became Hey.com, our new email service. And we launched that in 2020, and we basically then reversed the decision we made in 14. The decision we made in 14, we called that internally becoming Basecamp, which meant yeah. turning the entire company into just Basecamp. As you said, we even changed the name of the company from 37 Singles to Basecamp. And then actually, what was it, uh, last year, we changed our name back. Oh, I missed the change back. Okay. <laughs> yes. <laughs> because now we have two products again. Now we have Basecamp and we have Hey. And at that point, we just made a different decision. Now, as, as I said earlier, we ended up with 80 people. Uh, we managed to do it in a way where we avoided many of the things I was dreading and Jason was dreading at the time of the original Becoming Basecamp decision. And we also just like, you know what? We've been in business together for 22 years. We gotta, we gotta try some different things just to yeah. keep things interesting. Um, we had a similar, similar take on this this year. For the first, uh, what is that going to be? 22 years of the business together. Jason and I spend way less than a million dollars on marketing, partly because we thought a lot of it was just waste. Partly because we were good at creating awareness around our products and our company in different ways. But then just this year, we were like, fuck it, let's try something. So we set aside $5 million to just try on a bunch of different marketing. We produced um, TV commercials. We did outdoor advertisement. We've done a bunch of things. And and some of that just simply came from that if you, if you live long enough, you're, you're going to have to shake it up if you still want to stay interested yeah. in the thing you do. And you can also just do that when you sit comfortably in the glorious chair of profitability and you've been sitting on that chair for 20 plus years. You're like, you know what? It doesn't even matter. If it works, that's great. If it doesn't work, that's we also learned. fine. Yeah. Then we tried a thing and we learned something. And and more importantly, we had fun and entertained ourselves. So one of the favorite things I've ever seen you produce content, otherwise, your, is your startup uh, school speech, which definitely went viral back in the days of whatever we probably not viral by today's standards. <laughs> viral, how that was more than 10 years ago at this point, right? 15 almost, I want to say. Yeah, so I, I suggest everyone checks that out. We'll put it in the show notes, but you put it pretty simply in that speech. There are a bunch of things for hundreds of years, businesses made money by getting customers to pay you for your product and making a profit at result. You talked about these three P's and the missing P, you know, it's product, profit, you need an actual price. How did we get away from charging customers for things? And like, what, how does that, and I think we're seeing that now, how does it distort learning about product market fit when you're relying on advertisers to support your product and not figuring out what customers will actually value? Because one of the examples I give is like, we might all love delivery of food to ourselves at, you know, at a 10% overhead in which the company loses a billion dollars a year. But at a 40% overhead in which the company could make a reasonable profit, none of us are interested into it. So it's not the idea, right? <laughs> there's a there's a price that makes the idea viable or not viable and, and gets the product market fit. 
Yes. So that was this um, funny story where Paul Graham invited me to speak to at, at startup school. Um, I think mostly probably because um, at that time, the vast majority of all the startups coming out of Y Combinator were using Ruby and Rails. And yeah. I think he invited me thinking I was going to talk about technology. He did not know and what it, you're... Yeah. Oh, no, absolutely yeah. not. He did not know that I was going to get on stage and basically denounce the entire venture capital business model, which was exactly what I did, right? Like I went up on that stage and said, it feels awfully lonely being up here, being seemingly the only person who cares about profit. And of course, the, the reason I was so lonely up there caring about profit is that venture capitalists do not make their money off profits. They make their money off growth growth in terms of top line, that that is the entire exercise and has been for quite a long time. And it's gotten even more so. I mean, some of those early IPOs, uh, Google, I think even was the true of Facebook, I forget. But some of those early IPOs, the companies were actually profitable by the time they went to market. That's not been true for a very, very long time. That the only thing that mattered in terms of having a home run VC slam dunk success was to show fantastical growth rates, regardless of how much money was being lost. Because VCs were very adept at selling the vision that every single portfolio company they had was actually uh, Amazon in the hiding that they too could go 20 years without profits and then suddenly turn off on the profit spigot and it would just simply spew out cash. Now, as we know- The last year has disproven that hypothesis. Right, it, yeah. it's, it's vastly disproving it, but look at how long it was quote unquote true for. Yeah. Now, this is one of these um, whips that I am getting a little bored with, but- this was a zero interest rate phenomenon in terms of its longevity and scale. When we look back- Free money, at, yeah. Exactly, free money. And, and not just free money, but impatient, desperate money trying to find yield anywhere, anyhow. Yeah. And that money, first of all, that whole thesis powered the Great Recession- yeah. Um, money just desperately trying to find these mortgages. And uh, when you have demand for something, you will conjure up supply and yeah. boom, there you have subprime. When you have demand for uh, yield out of uh, venture capital, boom, you will conjure up supply and, and VCs will try to supply you with all these unicorn candidates. Um, probably still the same low number of winners amongst them, but they'll just produce more and more bets on it. And those bets can go on for an awfully long time in a zero interest rate environment before realizing, as you say, that the underlying business model was never going to work, never going to work. You mentioned food delivery. I think it's a great example. Not that example. sexy. Like it's so funny. All this stuff has gotten a lot of, it's just not, it's not a sexy business, right? Like no, food it's delivery a or grocery delivery. Yeah. It's a grind. It's a single digit grind right. even more so. This is what's so interesting about this Amazon case, right? So much of the venture capital world is built on the Amazon case as the savior, that you can go decades with no profits and boom, suddenly you're profitable. But if you look at Amazon.com, the business that actually sells stuff, the, the Amazon that most people know, the prime thing, it's a single digit uh, business model. Right, like you just don't stores. make that yeah. much money selling groceries or widgets or, or boxes or whatever. Where is Amazon making all their money? Cloud and AWS. Yeah, 
Exactly, cloud, which was just a sort of side effect that came out of the whole thing. So even this thesis, the the cornerstone of the thesis, I think is actually, I mean, fraudulent is a big word, but um, misdirecting, misdirecting that Amazon.com is actually not the great business. It's not the thing that can fuel all these things. It was the fact that they ended up incubating AWS, that AWS actually was a wonderful idea. We can perhaps get into, into that. And they that were solving their own problem, right? Very similar to exactly. how their yes. products get solved. Yeah, they were. But if you then look at it today and you look at Uber or you look at Lyft or any of these other things, that's just say, um, the fact that they were able to create the appearance of a market as long as they subsidize the product by like 40, 50, 60% does not at all prove that there's a market there at all. Um, and I think you've found that in everything from uh, scooter rental to food delivery right. to to these kind of Uber-like services that so many of these companies were valued at billions of dollars about five seconds ago. And then poof, it all comes tumbling down because, do you know what? There's actually not a great business here. We say it's a software business. We call it a unicorn, but it's like transportation. It's um, grocery stores. It, this is not sexy, innovative stuff that's high margin you- stuff there's a guy who's been posting on linkedin i forget his name but he's had some great data behind this and one of the things he said is like again to this decade it's been a decade he thinks that there is a and, and he puts these brands d2c brands that are all down 98 percent stock price and still still losing money in 2023 and he said look there is this misperception that you could just flip a switch to profitability and he said i don't think these leaders of the last decade have the dna or know what it is or know how to do it i think they've been trained and scaling for so long that no one even knows how to do this. And I, I I thought that was a pretty interesting take on it. I think that's spot on. And the case for me that illustrates it more than anything was Groupon. Remember Groupon? <laughs> yeah, they're so still Groupon, kicking out there. Yeah. It, it sort of just, um, <laughs> what, 2008, I think, or 2009 becomes the, no, 2007 probably, before the Great Recession, becomes the fastest growing company in history or something, the fastest company to reach a billion dollars in revenue. Yeah, by the way, when you hire 10,000 people in 12 months, things are going to go wrong with that or whatever that number was. (laughs) (laughs) But but even more telling was that um, sort of the financial prospects when they were about to go public was it was all based on the premise that um, they didn't actually have to count marketing expenses as expenses because any expense on marketing that resulted in a customer um, should be viewed in the light that that customer was forever. It was a one-time cost. So it was like a a, a one-time write-off. Oh, we spent some money acquiring a customer, but I mean, that customer's forever. So we never have to do that again. And if you extrapolate on that, hey, here's a customer we have forever. And forever, we can sell them a weekly deal for some shit massage or what have you. (laughs) Um, Yeah, it looks pretty good. And then back on Earth, a place where customers churn, um, the business model never made any damn sense whatsoever. Yet that kind of became sort of the ethos. If we just do math, if we do accounting, and we just subtract all the expenses we don't like, yeah, we're profitable, right? When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help find the right professionals for your team faster and free. LinkedIn isn't just a job board. It helps you identify and hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. Case in point, last year I asked the CEO of a major ski resort how he got his job, and he told me that he saw it on LinkedIn and decided to apply. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. 
So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. On LinkedIn, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Hire professionals like a professional on LinkedIn. The team at LinkedIn is also constantly finding ways to make the process easier. They even just launched a feature that helps you write job descriptions, making the process easier and quicker. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash practical. That's linkedin.com slash practical to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Yeah. It's not the gap version of EBITDA expenses that we don't like or whatever the acronym Exactly. Is. It's such a wild universe to exist in yeah. that we never existed in, right? And when you exist in the universe of actual profitability that is making more money than you spend, you become good at that. You become good at making money. In fact, you develop the skills, as you say, to even do so. There are so many companies right now who do not have the skills. Or figure on how out to run what customers will buy, which may not be what you thought they valued in their product. Like price is a Correct. pretty good proxy for what is your customer value. Yes. And this is one of the things that I often see in our business. Uh, all of our competitors are going up market and they go up market on the same playbook. They use um, small and medium sized businesses to bootstrap and show traction. And then as soon as they have, tra- have traction, they raise a series A and B round or whatever. Then they hire a huge enterprise sales team. And then there's somehow there is a magic machine where you put a $5 bill into an enterprise sales machine and you will get $1 of revenue out. Now, that's a totally shitty trade, but if all you care about is to get to $100 million in revenue, which used to be the bar for going public, like who cares if you have to spend $5 million in doing so? I love that that is the new alchemy. You know, having been self-funded for yes. over a decade and saying, look, we constantly had to make 10 cents into a dollar. I, I think it is so funny how we celebrate turning $100 into 10. I actually think the concept of celebrating raising money it's kind of interesting when you think about like, how is that different? You know, if you said debt and equity, like, do you see anyone celebrate taking out a credit line or or a ton of debt? Like, let's actually go have a party right. and waste the money and celebrate that we just, can you imagine someone borrowing money for the bank and then spending a lot of money throwing an expensive party celebrating that they borrowed money from the bank? <laughs> it's due back at some point, right? <laughs> yes, yes. That's actually, I remember at one point I um, got in a bit of hot water when I said, like, instead of congratulating people, we should offer them our condolences. <laughs> because the fact that you raised money puts about a 90% chance that you're going to die quickly. Or treat it as a scarce resource, like you would a bank loan, right? I mean, that's the... Yes, but but it is more insidious than that because it's not just debt, right? Debt is just something you pay back um, what you owe, and then you're square. That doesn't exist with venture capital. If you take a, a, a Series A round of capital, you have signed up for showing 100 times growth, 1,000 times growth, because that's what you need to do to validate the model. The model is we make 10 investments, eight of them are going to go bust, one of them is going to be like a meh, and one of them is going to pay for the other nine. Yeah, That is the math, right? As long as everyone playing the game understands that, then that great, right? That, is the, that has always been the math, and anyone would tell you that that's the math, right? 
Yes, but it, it preys on this delusion that everyone thinks that they're going to be a winner at the at the roulette table, right? Yeah. Um, and I think it brings real distortions into the market in terms of proper allocation of capital. But that's a larger sort of economic picture that was born and pushed out of this zero interest environment. Now we're in a 5% interest environment, and suddenly the appetite for these wild gambles is rapidly, massively reduced, as you can see in all the valuations of these companies that are getting crushed by minus 80%, or as you say, minus 98% in some extreme cases, right? That maybe this was just an aberration. Now, it's entirely possible we go back to 0% interest rate environment and, and we relight the party once more. Um, I, I hope not. To some extent, I hope that we get a better um, sort of view at allocation of capital. Not that we should not be taking risks, right? Like it's not either or. It's not that every single business has to be profitable from day one or no business ever has to be profitable. <laughs> There's something there in the middle. But I think we were wildly out of balance for a very long time because of this zero interest rate environment. So that's the financial piece of it, like the 90%. I mean, understanding the math. The other piece, and the, my favorite part from that speech, was you essentially making fun of venture capital, making fun of lifestyle businesses, um, and making yes. them feel bad <laughs> about it. I think you said there are too few people trying to just make a nice Italian restaurant in the web space. Like, Can you explain a little more about how the lifestyle business became a sort of pejorative word? Last time I checked, we, we only get one life you know, out there. Yeah, that was really the point where I actually got pissed off that the math, as we just talked about, where venture capitalists look at a, a basket of companies and they see 10 shots at getting one mega hit, right? Everything else is expendable to get that to that unicorn. Um, the entrepreneur's life, um, their sanity, everything is expendable. To, in order to service that someone is going to have to show that 10,000% return to, to pay for the whole thing. So, of course, it aligns then with the fact that they're going to want to build up a system of values that highly praises anyone who is single-mindedly sacrificing everything to create that grand return. And I went like, do you know what? I think that's a bad deal for the people who are in that basket. As an individual entrepreneur, sort of signing up for five, seven, perhaps 10 years of your life, grinding it out 80, 100, or 120 hours a week uh, in service of a what? A 10% chance of becoming this unicorn that makes it all back. And then once you make it all back, what do you make back? Do you get your decade of life back? No, you don't. You might get a nice check. That is entirely possible. But I have found more than a few disillusioned entrepreneurs who suddenly have lost your family a few extra point, zeros. Right? Exactly. Exactly. And that's the thing that I find so remarkable here is that venture capitalists, at least a lot of them, are quite explicit about this fact. Hey, you are signing up for a singular mission. You should not expect that there's room for a family on board that train. You should not expect that there's room for your health on board of that train. You should certainly not expect that you have room for any intellectual um, pursuits or hobbies outside of work. This is it, right? And I just went like, who wants to live like that? I remember this um, 
uh, interview with Marissa Mayer. She had just taken off over yeah. Yahoo. I used her as a case study in my book about her, a negative case study about her. To, uh, it's funny. I was going to mention that, uh, her, you know, the bragging about 130 hour work weeks at Google. Yes. Hour work that weeks. that yeah. was exactly the case I was going to bring up, right? <laughs> yeah. you, you have here, you have um, one of the richest, most successful people in the history of the human race. Right, she'd made at that point already hundreds of millions of dollars as an executive at Google, who signed up to be CEO at Yahoo, who were then bragging about 130 hours a week. Like, just do that math, and and she I've knew done it math. seven days a week, and there's only six hours to sleep. <laughs> exactly right, and and she was even doubling down on this, saying like, yeah, yeah, yeah it's difficult, but you just got to be strategic with your bathroom breaks strategic with your uh, bathroom I breaks. I missed that line or I would have included that. Yeah, but That line is just, to me, it's just gold because it illustrates this idea that we somehow placed on a pedestal a life worse than what, slaves in ancient Egypt? Like you're building the pyramids and you have um, less hours dedicated to, to slaving away in the day. You're supposed to be the winner here. In this capitalist system, you are at the top. You are the king of the queen of the pile here. And yet you're putting in 130 hours. And I mean, even if that's the most pathological extreme and actually probably a lie, like no freaking right. way he was working that amount, right? But like, that's what you wanted to, that's what she wanted to That was she wanted to project. Yeah. That was the yeah. value system, right? Like you were, you were the top dog if you could claim that you worked the most hours out of anyone. It's just a bizarre, like a gold system to have. I went like, you know what? I made a fair bit of money uh, making software. I would like to enjoy that. I would like to have friends. I would like to work out. I would like to have some hobbies. I like to drive race cars. I like to have time off on the weekends. I like to do other things because if I do those other things next to my creative pursuits, do you know what? I might actually enjoy life. Heaven forbid that I enjoy my 20s or my 30s or now I'm into my 40s, right? Heaven forbid I might be able to go the distance. I've been working now with Jason for 22 years. We've been working sustainably and calmly the vast, vast, vast majority of that time. Of course, there's always the one week or two weeks that are difficult. But the vast majority of the time, we've just been working 40 hours a week making money doing so, leaving time and resources left over to other pursuits in life to such a degree that I look at the moniker of the lifestyle business as sort of the highest form of praise, yeah. a kind of business that is compatible with having a life. Like, how is that not our goal? <laughs> how is that not the goal of anyone? Now, I say all that, and then I'll carve out a little caveat for the kinds of people like Elon Musk that somehow managed to run five major companies at the same time, sending rockets literally into space <laughs> and reforming the entire transportation system of the world with electric cars. And I go like, okay, do you know what? I'm actually also glad that those people exist in this world. There should be some of them. There are the exceptions. Yeah. Tiny, 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 tiny exception. Genetic. They're, I think they're genetic exceptions too. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yes. And we should also celebrate that. It, it can totally tip over the other side if you are not careful, where you go like, no one should be allowed to be my, uh, manically obsessed with something. And they're like, no, the world is absolutely 100% better off because Elon Musk is in it and he is this crazy dude doing what he does. But the vast majority of entrepreneurs and what the rest of the world need, like, could you imagine? 
imagine if the world had 10,000 Elon Musks in it? <laughs> Holy shit, what a crazy chaos place that would be. No, thank you. Um, let's have a handful. <laughs> yeah. And then the vast majority of people, can they just settle into like making the uh, sort of fax machine work? Yeah. That'd be great. So look, you you obviously have a lot of thoughts about business software. I, some of your writing outside the space around, particularly I think with your perspective of having not grown up in the US, kind of what's going on here now. There are a couple of things I saw you write recently. I'd love to get your take on um, the doom-oriented coverage of, of life in America and, and how we need a little more perspective. I, you also wrote a really interesting piece called Standing Up to Golems, I think was based on Tim Urban's recent book, What's Our Problem? And a lot of people are trying to figure out how do we get in this place. Tim's going to come back on and talk about that. So I, I'd love to hear you talk. You One, either, both. You, you, you can pick the order on that. Yeah, so... For me, the pandemic, let's say from 2020 forward until now, was a major turning point in how I see the world. Um, prior to that phase, I was way too enamored with the, the doom telling of America. And part of that was informed by growing up in Denmark. Grew up in this uh, small company or company, small country <laughs> of less than six million people that somehow seem to make most things freaking work. Like there is a healthcare system that's quite good at taking care of everyone. There is a education system that even pays students to to take a advanced degree. There's high levels of trust. There's like these are nice things. And I'd been living in the U.S. for at that point fifteen years. And I thought, like, the U.S. is so good at so many things. It is so prosperous. In fact, GDP per capita is about 20% larger than it is in Denmark. Why can't we have nice things? Like, clearly, the impediment must just be stupidity or unwillingness or greed or any of the boogeymen that frequently gets trotted out. And I think going through the pandemic and seeing how a lot of the individuals I would have thought might deliver, and I say that almost in the religious sense, America to a, a Danish standard just turned out to be something entirely different than I thought they were going to be. And that's mostly about a disillusionment with the left uh, on the political spectrum in the US and seeing the way that they used and embraced the pandemic, um, terms like uh, follow the science, turning into these religious uh, enchantments. And a whole host of things in that bucket that just seriously turned me off from that whole prospect. And then also realizing, ironically, through coming back to Denmark, I've been living in Denmark um, for the majority of the time for the past three years, and seeing my native country again for the first time, having not seen it for 15 years and been in the US, and realizing why is it that Denmark works the way it does? Well, it is a highly homogenous society that is very culturally narrow because it does not have to contain the multitudes of perspectives and backgrounds and whatever that the American project tries to do. The American project is a melting pot. It really is. And that just gives you a different premise and a different foundation. You cannot have the same things. You cannot get the same things that you would get in a high trust society like the Danish. And I think it really took sort of that seesaw of being a Dane, going to the U.S., getting disillusioned why Americans can't figure out how to get the Danish thing, then going back to Denmark, 
Right, where people li- American... li- literally don't want the same thing, right? So Exactly. And then you can't really expect them to agree, yeah. No, no, because of, of how would they, why would they agree, right? They're yeah. coming from so many different perspectives. The uh, amazement that I <laughs> sort of now look at America with is like, how the hell does it work at all? How does it work at all? How does anything work? It is a true marvel. It is a true country of exceptionalism, which was a term I used to poo-poo out the wazoo um, prior to this uh, revelation, personal revelation, that um, America really is a land of exceptionalism. To make it work with all the factors stacked against it is a major achievement. Now, you can say that, and then you can still recognize that there's a lot of things that don't work. And there actually also are a fair number of things that are getting worse. But I chose and have chosen to zoom out and bid and just go like, you know what? I could be pissed about that all the time, the things that don't work or are getting worse. Or I can take two steps back and marvel, absolutely marvel at the things that do work and have a little bit of faith that the long run prospects of America are actually quite good. I think the U.S. is 100% in a funk and some of that funk is... Due to a million factors we could talk about, um, but I think the narrative itself, the narrative as it's being perpetrated on social media in particular, is a is a huge part of it. The vibe, as we now say about everything, is is a huge part of it. You look at some of these long run statistics on on wealth inequality or on crime or these things, and you see like, yeah, there's some upticks here. There's some things that are not going great, but you know what? If you take um, homicides, for example, gun homicides, and you zoom back to like the 90s, you're like, oh, okay, the 90s were higher than this. Okay, interesting. You zoom back to like, what is it, 74? Oh, okay, also higher than now. Does it mean that now is good? Uh, No. Does it mean that now is worse than it was in the, whatever, mid 2000s? Yeah, yeah, it is worse. There is an uptick. But it's so myopic. A lot of this discourse about the fact that America is doomed, in my perspective, that when I look at it from the outside, I zoom out a little further. I go like, you know what? The U.S. has been through some funks in the past. If you look at the stagflation of the of the 70s, the murder rate, the, the crime rate, all sorts of things. And then you see what came after that, the flourishment in, in so many ways through, through the 80s and the 90s, the fact that the U.S., built this marvel of the internet, the things that I owe my entire career to, um, the fact that it continues to to dominate in so many different areas. We, we just talked about AI for a second, right? The US is the undisputed leader in that realm, as it is in so many other realms. You go like, can we just not for a second talk about how everything is awful all of the time and recognize the fact that there are actually a ton of things that are Fine, good, um, worth fighting for. And that comes to uh, to Tim's book, What's Our Problem? Yeah, What's Our Problem? Where, where he tries to diagnose, in part, how did we end up here? And he, he makes that diagnosis on a lot of it being the political environment, right? Like that greater polarization, what's the polarization coming from? It's coming from social media in large regards. It's coming from the extremism that's being built up. It's coming from the illiberalism that's... Uh, so present in in things like uh, wokeness and and other um, sort of political philosophies, and go like you know what? we can get out of that we can get back to a, a higher place of of discourse and of being and we can solve our problems. And it's okay to disagree, right? Like yes, so, yeah. Doesn't mean you can't exist or I can't exist, right? And this is why, to me, 
this last uh, two to three years was such an eye opener was because so many things I thought were true turned out not to be. And it was just such a humbling experience for me personally to go like, I think A, and then reality happens and reality shows me that A is wrong. Oh, wow. What else am I wrong about? Once you've had that experience on some major topics for a little while, I think the the normal human response, I'd hope, would be right. to have a, a bit more humility about the things you currently think to be true and the fact that the people you think hold sort of the divergent opinion on some things. Like, do you know what? Maybe they have something. Maybe they're right. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. As long as you haven't pledged yourself to a to a tribe, right, that makes you feel threatened yes. if you're gonna And that's the hard part, you know, get, right? Get, I mean, there's a bunch of these books coming out on on tribalism. And I look, I think to your point, and I, I'm very centrist on one everything, look, there's still some people who were very right uh earlier on on the conservative side where people haven't on on what they said and about schools and about handling COVID, where they have no one has been willing to say that. Like, and when the history books will show it. But no one's been willing to say, oh, you know what? Actually, that was wrong. That was one of the major ones for me. It's funny. I just had a debate with someone on on the podcast around peanuts on on airplanes. And and kind of as a sort of a metaphor of this, where like I have a family member who's deathly allergic to peanuts. So I'm very aware of this. But the notion that someone has a peanut allergy on the plane and that no one on the plane can have peanuts is actually just not backed by any evidence. And so I think it gets people disbelieving. And I went and found an article that said no one's ever been sick, no one's ever been killed, no one's ever, like there's never been a case of this in, in airlines. And so again, but it's an example where people don't want to have this discussion, but maybe when we say things to this, like people that then they don't listen to us the next time around, we tell them something that doesn't have a lot of fact around it. And I, I actually think that is interesting because I would have told you early on, I well, I disagreed with, it was better to be safe than sorry. I don't think we've acknowledged some of the viewpoints that were actually correct <laughs> early on in the pandemic they've been proven to be correct well i've acknowledged those personally well personally to myself mostly here right like <laughs> i started out the pandemic so, yeah <laughs> i've also done that i I'm mean i got in hot water yeah. over canadian trucker protests and yeah. and other things in this regard but this was this was a great example at the start of the pandemic, I believed um the powers that be that like you know what just flatten the curve two weeks all right, yeah, let's get on it. All right, everyone, line up. Let's let's flatten the curve. Let's do it. The whole thing, right? And then you go through that experience and you realize that the so-called experts were so wrong about so much of it to a fraudulent degree, I'd say at this point is, is my personal conclusion. You go like, of course, that's going to create a level of skepticism about all sorts of other things that the, again, these almost sound like these... Um, uh, words where I would have yeah. rolled my eyes about four or five years ago, but I'm going to say it anyway, like establishment, when the establishment is so wrong about so many things, yeah. you start distrusting the whole gamut of it. And that should not be foreign territory for the left, for progressives. I remember um, 
this uh, do you remember the the this is your brain on drugs yes yeah um, the there's this campaign yeah. in like yeah. whatever late 80s 90s this is your brain on drugs and in that category was lumped everything from like heroin to pot and as soon as people realized that like pot didn't like instantly fry your brain in the way it was being portrayed people naturally went like well then this is a load of crock this is just not true right now notwithstanding that they're can't be bad for your brain, blah, blah, blah. It was it was just, the case was vastly overstated. And you undermine your own level of authority if you're just really wrong about something and you do not commit to that wrong. I had the same experience with much of the media with the whole Russia gate thing, right? You're like, if you go four years screaming like, the president is like a, a puppet of Russia and then the whole thing falls apart and you barely retract even the most egregiously wrong articles on the point, you know what, I'm just going to look at the new stuff you put out with a different level of skepticism. And I think a lot of people went through multiple experiences with that on multiple different topics from, from where they went sides, like, oh, yeah. the thing I thought, yes, totally. <laughs> but, but I think for whatever reason, hot water alert here too, the left just had more misses over the last four or five years in my book. And that was one of the reasons I actually ended up being more interested in what some scholars on the right had to say about things. Thomas Sowell, for example, um, is a, a famous uh, right-leaning, right-wing, I don't know, is that even, can you say that without yeah. that sounding like a pejorative <laughs> these days? I'm not even sure. But a uh, right-wing person who's reading, or been writing about sort of social topics for a very long time, been a um, substantially controversial figure, someone I probably would never have thought to look into prior to this uh, cold streak of uh, bad policy calls on the left for such a long time. But I did. And and just realized, oh, do you know what? There's a bunch of people on the right who actually have good ideas. Does that mean I, I subscribe to all of them? Absolutely not. Does it mean I disagree with a bunch of them? For sure I do. But does it also mean that there's some real intellectual depth there that I could actually learn something from? And now that I've come more unmoored from sort of this tribal allegiance, um, it is easier to take those things in. Right, this is the point, right? Un, untribing, you go to, I would say, you go to the a la carte menu, not the, you know, you have to buy from one side or another. And I think when you look at these, again, I might disagree with 90% of someone says, but the five or 10% of something they says makes me rethink my my perspective on it. Yes, and I think for me, it was thinking in large parts that I would disagree with 95% and finding maybe I only disagreed with half. Yeah. That is a really humbling experience when you go through that. And in many ways, like a wonderful experience. This is one of the things I love being wrong. Like there's just a, such an intellectual rush in me. When I find out I was wrong, that means I was just corrected. That means I now got better information. I got better models. There's nothing I love more. This is what I love about programming. This is what I love about business. Finding things out. Finding things out. Sometimes they're novel things. And sometimes, even in the best cases, I think, in my opinion, is a revision. Something you thought was true turned out not to be. And you got this glorious opportunity to update your models and have a better, more accurate perception and idea of the world. Wow. Love it. Now, clearly, this is not a joy that is broadly shared. Said by, said by 1% <laughs> of people. It, yeah. yeah. <laughs> to put it mildly. But like it could be. It yeah. could be. I mean, I, I don't know if I would have uh, sort of on the political spectrum said that I was in this. I thought I was pretty well formed. 
I mean, by the time you hit your 40s, uh, at least yeah. for a lot of people, like you're in kind of a political groove. I mean, I believe the things I believe about the big topics and da-da-da. It's not that often you get a big uh, change. But I think this was the blessing for some people, certainly for me, to take out of this awful period of the pandemic. It was a real like shock to the system, shock to the intellectual system, shock to the allegiance systems, shock to the tribal system. And I go like, I am happy to be on the other side of that now. I would not have been without that. But damn. Well, I, look, that's very similar to something Derek Sivers said, brilliant thinker, when our interview a couple of years ago, he said, I, my favorite thing in the world is having my mind change. And I think if if people were to honestly believe that, we would be in a very different place or on our way to a different place. So I'll I'll connect to what you just said for, for the last question I usually ask. So this is multivariant. Uh, you can choose singular, repeated, and personal or professional. But what's a mistake that you've made that you've learned the most from? Oh, um... I would probably connect it to what we just talked about. Yeah. Thinking that I was sort of politically settled or in a groove or, God forbid, I hate this term now with a passion, on the quote-unquote right side of history. Yeah. Um, snapping out of that, snapping out of whatever tribal attractions I might have had in the past and taking two steps back from that and and – like as a long life social democrat fan of the danish system whatever thinking that it was just stupidity greed or ignorance that kept america from becoming a carbon copy of the nordics um that was a a real miss and it took diving into some right-leaning scholars, the likes of Thomas Stowell and others, um, Glenn Lowry, uh, to realize, you know what? That's just that's just bad thinking. If you cut yourself off from the intellectual products of the the best thinkers on on any side of any issue, you're only seeing half the truth, half the picture. And again, it doesn't mean you have to agree with people. Um, at least know why they think that way, right? That that's yes. me, like if you wanted to go against someone, you should at least deeply understand why they believe that. That would be a that would be a good you know debate strategy at least. Well, this was perhaps then the other thing. I used to love debating on the internet, like almost pathologically <laughs> so. Like I would just be <laughs> it's up become a dangerous like all sport. night yeah. on exactly on <laughs> on Twitter, just like arguing with strangers. And there was like a, a fairly long period, I would say, where you could do that and it wasn't dangerous. Yeah. And then around 2016-ish forward, it became dangerous. That the whole, the act of debate became like about half an inch away from quote unquote harm. That I thought was a, and still think, and, and this is one of the themes of Tim's book, such a bad turn, such a bad turn yeah. that the vibrancy of debate, even debate of uncouth ideas or wrong ideas or misconceptions or whatever, is such a crucial engine for us to develop better understanding, better understanding of each other and better understanding of the ideas, that cutting ourselves off from that by making it radioactive to entertain the wrong ideas is absolutely an existential threat to sort of the whole enterprise here of progress that we have going. And I think this is why, even though it is highly charged, this 
Musk notion of the woke mind virus is something that resonates so well with so many people that regardless of the content that's inside of that, um, this idea that debate itself is now dangerous and actually better off forbidden and the whole censorship industrial complex, the Twitter files, everything that goes into that box is just like, I find that more dangerous for society than any of the particulars that we might be fighting about on a cultural war basis at any one point. Oh, very well said. David, thanks for joining us. As I said, I'm a longtime admirer of your, both your mindset and the things you've, you and the team at 37 Signals have uh, accomplished. So it's great to have a chance to sit down and talk with you. My pleasure. Thank you. All right. To our listeners, thanks for tuning in to the Elevate podcast today. We'll include links to David and his work on the detailed episode page at robertglazer.com. If you enjoyed today's episode, I'd really appreciate if you could leave us a review as it helps new users discover the show and hear from amazing guests such as David. Thanks again for your support. Until next time, keep elevating. This episode is brought to you by the Yap Media Podcast Network. I'm Hala Taha, CEO of the award-winning digital media empire, Yap Media, and host of Yap Young and Profiting Podcast, a number one entrepreneurship and self-improvement podcast where you can listen, learn, and profit. On Young and Profiting Podcast, I interview the brightest minds in the world, and I turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your daily life. Each week, we dive into a new topic like the art of side hustles, how to level up your influence and persuasion, and goal setting. I interview A-list guests on Young and Profiting. I've got the best guests, like the world's number one negotiation expert, Chris Voss, Shark, Damon John, serial entrepreneurs, Alex and Layla Hermosi, and even movie stars like Matthew McConaughey. There's absolutely no fluff on my podcast, and that's on purpose. Every episode is jam-packed with advice that's gonna push your life forward. I do my research, I get straight to the point, and I take things really seriously which is why I'm known as the podcast princess and how I became one of the top podcasters in the world in less than five years. Young and Profiting Podcast is for all ages. Don't let the name fool you. It's an advanced show. As long as you want to learn and level up, you will be forever young. So join podcast royalty and subscribe to Young and Profiting Podcast or Yap, like it's often called by my Yap fam on Apple, Spotify, CastBox, or wherever you listen to your podcasts.